the Baltimore Ravens have the potential to build the most dominant defense in the NFL over the course of the 2023 offseason. We talk about how they can do it as well as dive into a very special interview on ESPN Films' latest 30 for 30 on the 2000 Ravens Bullies of Baltimore coming up next here on this edition of Locked on Ravens. You are Locked on Ravens, your daily Baltimore Ravens podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. Welcome into another edition of the Locked On Ravens podcast, your daily Baltimore Ravens podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Ostreicher of Ravens Wire. We're here, as always, on the Locked On Podcast Network. And thank you so much for being here with us today and tuning in and making us your first listen of the day. We are free and available on all podcasting platforms. It also includes over on YouTube in video form. And today's episode of Locked On Ravens is presented by Price Picks. Price Picks is daily fantasy made easy. Pick two to five players. And if they score more or less than their Price Picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money. On your entry, first time users are going to receive one has been in the bottom match up to $100 or promo code locked on. That's pricepicks.com. Promo code locked on. And we return here a very special Thursday edition episode of Locked On Ravens. We're going to be talking in the first segment about how the Ravens really do have the potential if they go the route of defense in the offseason, specifically focusing on that side of the ball, how they could build one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant defense in the NFL for the 2023 season. So we'll talk a bit about how the logistics of everything there. But then in our second and third segments, there is a very special interview that I was able to conduct. I'm very honored to have been able to do it with Ken Rogers and Jason Weber over at ESPN in the 30 for 30 series as they put together the Bullies of Baltimore film that'll be coming out on February 5th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time ESPN. That's when it's coming out. I had the chance to do an early screening of the film. And I'm just going to say it off the bat. I mean, I seriously had a smile on my face the whole time. I say it a lot, but you know, it's almost like a cheesy thing. Oh yeah. I had a smile on my face the whole time, but really, I mean, it's for a bunch of different reasons, you know, just kind of seeing that 2000s team fully in action again, you know, the memories of Tony Saragusa. So be sure to stay tuned for that with Ken and Jason. It was, it was a phenomenal interview, but if you're here with us today, Apple podcast, Google podcast, Spotify, be sure to follow us anywhere you do get your podcasts in audio form. If you want to instead watch the show in video form, you can see my face, my background, my shirt and everything. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, like this video. It is free. Following, subscribing, it is free. We are daily five days a week, Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Eastern Time. So Ravens news, analysis, updates. Even in the offseason, we do five days a week of Ravens content. So I really appreciate the support and thank you for everything over the course of now. This is episode 909 for me. Crazy going back to 2019. But all right, let's talk now about how the Ravens this year during this offseason can, I think, build, they have the potential to build the most dominant defense in the NFL. Now, there are plenty of really, really good defenses. I mean, you can look at the two teams who played in the NFC Championship game, Philadelphia and San Francisco. Those are two extremely top-flight defenses. But the Ravens themselves, I mean, you can't sell them a short with what they're able to do, especially after what, you know, a lot of people can admit was a pretty slow, I'll say, start for them. Obviously, the Miami game is one of those where you look at it and you're thinking, not not wonderful in terms of their actual defense and, you know, in that game in particular. 
They gave up 547 total yards to the Dolphins. I mean, those first three weeks, it was 380 total yards, 547 total yards, 447 total yards. But then they, they really got us together. They didn't allow 400 total yards for the rest of the season. And they tightened up in a lot of areas. I mean, this is a defense that when just looking at 2022, they finished third in rush defense, giving up 3.9 yards per attempt. They did finish 17th in pass defense, giving up 6.2 net yards per attempt. But, you know, just looking at those three games alone, I mean, the Ravens were 28th, I believe it was in the league over the first couple of weeks in pass defense. And they were able to climb the ranks with very good performances. I mean, everybody looks at the acquisition of Roquan Smith, which paid huge dividends. And I think it will for a long time with him, with him under contract, but the defense still, I think was able to find their stride a bit. And a lot of that was due to what Mike McDonald did in his first season. Now, like, you know, like some players coming into the league, sometimes it takes them a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe even a couple years to adjust to the NFL game from college in a new role. Now, Mike McDonald was with the Ravens for many years in a bunch of different roles, went to Michigan for a season as their defensive coordinator, and then came back to the Ravens in that same role. So he had to adjust, you know, calling a college defense is different from calling an NFL defense, despite him having the NFL experience. So, you know, you, you can look at the Miami game. You can look at the end of half defense, which I, I do think did need showing up over the course of the season. But you saw Mike McDonald with, I think, what was an aggressive approach, but it was a different aggressive approach than what we saw from Don Martindale over his four years as the Ravens defensive coordinator. Very timely with his blitzes was Mike McDonald being able to help guys when they needed it. And I think overall, it, it gave this Ravens defense life. Mike McDonald was a key point, and he's coming back. Well, you know, we can hope <laughs> it's pretty set in stone. I don't think he's getting any head coaching opportunities right now. But if he has another year like he did this year, I think that he could definitely be getting head coach consideration after another good year like that. And also, you can't discount what the Ravens did in both red zone situations and third down situations. Red zone wise, they were the third best defense in the NFL. Red zone wise, giving up 46.4%. And then third down wise, they were the fourth best third down defense, 34.9% conversion percentage there. Fourth down was not so pretty, but... It's, it can't be perfect. It can't be perfect. But so with all that being said, they can move into this 2023 offseason feeling pretty confident, I think, in what they're able to achieve there, especially because, look, especially over those last two games against Cincinnati, where, you know, the final scores will say that the Ravens lost 27-16 and 24-17, but the defense, they weren't helped by the offense. You know, both those games, there was a defensive touchdown by the Bengals, so really in the playoff game, the Ravens only gave up 17 points. And usually, you know, especially with hopefully what would be a Lamar Jackson-led offense, that's enough to win you a football game. So I think this offseason, well, they, they can address a couple of different areas of their defense. I think number one has to be cornerback. Marlon Humphrey's your guy, number one. You know that you're going to get great production on Marlon Humphrey. He's going to be one of the best corners in the NFL, had a great bounce back year. There are a lot of question marks behind Marlon Humphrey. Marcus Peters did not have a wonderful year for the Ravens in 2022. They had to rely on guys like Brandon Stevens and, and Pepe Williams and Daryl Worley and, and some of these guys where you would you they're fine depth pieces, right? But to thrust them into huge roles right off the bat for a substantial part of the season, that's not ideal for them. So I think that if they can go out there, and I think salary cap-wise, we've talked about that a lot on the show this week. So if you want to go check out some of our episodes from this week about the franchise tag, salary cap, we do have those. But with that being said, about $27.8 million in cap space for the Ravens right now, 
if the Ravens were a franchise tag, the more it makes things a, a really dicey because that's a one-year fully guaranteed contract. Now, if they were able to sign Lamar to an extension because that $27.8 million does not factor in any Lamar anything, no, no extension, no franchise tag. If they were able to sign him and make that first-year cap hit maybe $7 million, maybe $10 million, $12 million, I think the Ravens will have room outside of the Lamar extension if it happens for probably one major splash move and then one or two kind of mid-tier moves, almost like what we saw – Last offseason with Marcus Williams being a major splash. And then you have like the Morgan Moses signing, which was, you know, like a, a decently sized contract, but it wasn't like blow the bank contract like that. So for the Ravens, if you decide to make that big splash move a corner, right? If, if you go out there and get a true number two, who could, who could argue be a number one next to Marlon Humphrey, that defense, I think that's really the, the only huge glaring weakness on the Ravens defense right now for a unit that saw improvement over the course of the season as both a run defense, which was dominant all year for them and a pass defense, which got better over the course of the season. So if you want to add a star free agent cornerback or go out there and trade for a corner that I think could happen. If you decide to make that splash move a corner. Now, if, if the Ravens go out there and decide to make that splash, let's say a Deandre Hopkins or Mike Evans, then I think in the first round, if you can get a Joey Porter Jr. or a Clark Phillips or a stud number two guy to put next to Marlon Humphrey, and then on top of that, if Marcus Peters is willing to take a team-friendly deal and you can put him as like your number two slash three, so, you know, depending on what the situation is, having a guy in, let's just say, Joey Porter Jr. and then Marcus Peters, those top three guys, Humphrey, Porter Jr., and Peters, that's a really good start. Plus you have depth in Brandon Stevens and Pepe Williams and Jalen number Davis. That's great. Now, outside of that, I think the other big need for them is pass rush where they need more consistency there. Justin Houston's a free agent. I would love to bring him back. I'm a big Justin Houston guy. If you didn't know that already, but if not, I think you do make a move for a veteran, whether that is free agency or whether it is, you know, do that via trade maybe, but maybe you draft another Outside linebacker, I don't know if they'll do that three years in a row like he was a high draft pick. They did it off a OA in 2021 and David Ajabo in 2022. But other than that, I mean, defensive line-wise, Justin Metabike, Clayus Campbell, if he does come back, that's another question. Travis Jones, Brochick Washington. In that outside linebacker room, we do have OA and Ajabo and Tyus Bowser. Inside linebacker-wise, Roquan Smith and, and Patrick Queen and Malik Harrison. We talked about the corners a little bit. I think that is an area – for improvement safety wise though it's marcus williams kyle hamilton chuck clark a question mark bringing back geno stone i think would be solid for them so they have pieces all over the place but i do think this 2023 defense will probably live and die by the cornerback room and by the pass rush and it all depends on what the ravens do this offseason in terms of do they want to push more into the wide receiver department i do think that they need to add a star wide out but at the same time i think the ravens if they put enough into the defense this offseason, whether it is from a trade or from a big free agent signing or even just a couple high draft picks, the Ravens do have the potential based off of the improvement we saw over the course of the season to field one of the best, if not the best, dominant defenses in the NFL in 2023. But speaking of dominant defenses, we're going to dive into our interview with Ken and Jason, the co-directors of the Bullies of Baltimore ESPN 30 for 30 film in our second segment coming up next here on Locked on Ravens. So don't go anywhere. Still have a lot to talk about here on the show. But first, this episode is brought to you by FanDuel. And this year, the only app you need at your Super Bowl party is FanDuel, America's number one sports book. And we're really excited about our new sports betting partner for Locked on because they're the number one sports book in America. 
FanDuel. And if you're new to FanDuel, that's even better. They have so many great features that make betting on sports fun and easy. Download FanDuel now so you can bet Super Bowl 57 with a no-sweat first bet. You'll get up to $3,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. FanDuel lets you bet on everything from the money line, the point spreads, to who will score a touchdown. And for me, again, big basketball guy, big Denver Nuggets guy. And the Nuggets are favored for tonight's game against the Warriors, 11.5-point favorites. I know the Warriors are coming into Denver on the second half of a back-to-back, so maybe they decide to rest some starters. So I'm, I'm keeping my eye out on the money line over there on FanDuel. But the FanDuel Sportsbook app is safe, secure, and super easy to use. Best of all, you can get paid your winnings instantly, and it is a super user-friendly experience. It makes the app super easy to use. So join FanDuel at FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to claim your no-sweat first bet on Super Bowl 57. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. Make every moment more a FanDuel official sportsbook partner of the NFL. We return here our second segment of Locked On Ravens. Kevin Allstriker, your host, still here with you. Again, thank you so much for tuning in with us today and making us your first listen of the day. Be sure to make your second listen to Locked On NFL and check out our Senior Bowl coverage. We have Hosts from across our network down in Mobile right now. They're doing live shows after every practice. So be sure to check that out on the Locked On NFL Draft YouTube page. Now let's get into, again, the Ravens. And I think the recognition that this 2000 team, it deserves it. They haven't gotten a ton of recognition, even though they are regarded as one of the best defenses of all time, if not the best defense. And so ESPN Films put together their latest 30 for 30 called Bullies of Baltimore. It is about that 2000 Ravens team. Again, February 5th. 8.30 p.m. Eastern, and we're going to now dive into an interview with Ken Rogers and Jason Weber, who put this together, did a phenomenal job with it, and, and I'm excited to have everybody hear what their insight is about how this all came together. So without any further ado, let's dive into the first part of the interview now. Well, two very special guests join me now and Ken Rogers and Jason Weber, the directors of the Bullies of Baltimore 30 for 30 series. It's coming out February 5th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. And this is a 2000s team that doesn't get talked about a lot. And so the fact that they now have this, I think is great for them. And I think, first of all, Ken and Jason, amazing job on this. It was a documentary that, you know, a lot of people say that they have smiles on their faces for things just kind of like cliche cheesy, but I'm serious. Literally the whole time, the storytelling and everything. And I kind of want to start there is to just how you guys were able to figure out that this is what you wanted to set your sights on and hone in on, because this team is one that I think doesn't get enough recognition. And the fact that they now have this recognition is great for them. And I think great for the sport in general. Yeah. There, there comes a certain time when a film is, is ready. It's baked. It's fully baked. You know, 10 years ago, this team, um, you know, would have been kind of around the 2012 Ravens time and, you know, things were in rebuild after Billick left and you, know, you got a new coach and the NFL was still kind of the same. Now, 22 years later, it, it, it plays differently because this team is so different than what teams are today and what they're allowed to be today on the field and off the field. So we sort of got to the point where we said this is worth revisiting now because this team this team doesn't exist anymore. This type of team, these type of personalities. Um, and that's, that's where it started. And then it, it went to the fact of, okay, how do we actually tell the story and how do we want to get them together? Um, and that's where Jason started putting together this incredible stage show that we put on in front of 2000 people in Baltimore. 
you know, I don't like to think of 2000 to be so long ago that it's like <laughs> it deep in the recesses of people's minds, but we are at that stage uh, where uh, 2000 is uh, a while ago. It, it seems like it was yesterday to me. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, I think to be able to tell the story of this team to a generation that never, that doesn't really know the backstory that only knows these guys as uh, I see Ray Lewis on TV. I see Shannon Sharp with Skip. Uh, you know, I saw uh, Brian Billick on NFL Network for all those years. Like they know him as TV personalities. This documentary gives everybody a chance to see what they were really like as football players. Right. And you kind of talk about those personalities. I mean, what was, what was it like for you to get getting to know these guys, even if it was just for what they had to say for the actual production? I mean, being able to figure out a little bit more about Brian Billick and the Ray Lewis and the Shannon Sharps of the world. What, what was that like? Well, Ken, had you you'd worked with Brian before? I had not, so uh, I mean, he was—he's just an interesting character. So I don't know if you want to speak. Yeah, more. I feel like the uh, the tone was set, you know, early on that this was going to not just be a reunion of the 2000 team, but we were going to encourage and allow them to be who they were back in 2000. And you can see that when they get together, coach all of a sudden has a little more, uh, you know, puff in his chest, which is is what he was like in 2000. And and Ray all of a sudden is the ringleader, and uh, Goose is being outlandish and and being a huge personality as he was. And Shannon's talking a mile a minute, and that's who they were together. And our goal was to interview them individually and make sure we knew their stories individually. But then when you put them together on stage, they become a team again. And it was great to see that happen live and to see aspects of their personalities that wouldn't have come out in the individual interviews. I think of Ray Lewis being one of the most intense people I've ever interviewed, but on stage in this film, he can't contain himself from laughing so much about what Goose is doing next to him. And that's a part that, you know, people who just see him do individual interviews never get to see. They never get to see the sidekick who's laughing at someone's hijinks. And that was really a great, uh, a great part of this film is seeing how they were in each other's eyes. Yeah. Especially with Ray's interview. I mean, doing his individual interview, I mean, he was so intense and just like, you know, the, the that side that you often see of Ray Lewis came out in that individual interview. But it was such a different thing from the moment that he comes out on stage, which, again, for, you know, we don't want to reveal too much, but it's a really big moment in the film. Uh, you know, it, it was showtime for Ray and he, he wasn't quite the. Uh, the menacing character that there was in the interview. And I, I think in general, that's the, one of the cool things about how I feel like we presented this is that there's two sides of this team, right? There is that intense, aggressive, uh, almost bullying side. And in the individual interviews, I think the way that we framed those kind of brings that out. And then there was the joking, laughing, kind of just brash side. Um, and that's what you got from the, the stage and the live uh, event that was the backbone of the film. Yeah, and you, you guys kind of talk about the tone of what you envisioned for it. Now it actually came out. I mean, are you guys happy with the way that that tone ended up being portrayed? Because I think there are multiple tones throughout the production. I think it was portrayed really well by, by both the players and the coaches who were involved. Yeah, the tone was discussed a lot, especially a month after shooting the event. 
when Tony Saragusa passed away. Um, it was tragic. It, it was something that affected uh, us greatly, the Ravens even more. I mean, the whole NFL obviously was heartbroken. And we sort of looked at each other and said, what's this due to the film? You know, there was, there's all this joking up on stage and, and gosh, Goose just died. You know, are, do we want to laugh? So we said, let's watch it. Let's watch the event again before we really get deep into editing and determining what the tone is going to be. And when we watched it, we realized that it was almost funnier because you appreciated that they got to have that time together. And it, it just, there was, there was a humor in there that was life affirming of, boy, I'm glad goose got to do this with his buddies one more time. And so we decided to sort of present that in the film by letting those who don't know or reminding those who forgot that, you know, Goose passed just just a couple of weeks after this event and then presenting right away. Here he is full of life, just a just a few weeks before he passed. And you keep that in your head throughout the film. And I think you I think you come to appreciate him, how he goes about life, uh, what his relationships were. And it becomes um, a little bittersweet, but but life affirming. And it makes you want to embrace life the way Goose did. And that's the lesson I take away watching this film is anyone, even someone as full of life as Goose could go tomorrow. And so why not live like Goose, which is embrace it every day. Um, and I think that's sort of one of the morals that comes out of this film. I don't know if I could ever live like Goose, though. That, that <laughs> as, as, as aspirational as that is, um, it, it, that man was unique. That is for sure. Yeah. And even just getting to know Goose, I mean, what was that like for you guys? And, you know, he was known as such a fun loving guy, this larger than life personality for him to be able to, again, share that moment with his friends, but also to be able to kind of put his personality on display one more time. What, what was that like throughout the production? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it comes across in the film. There, there, the film is who Goose is. That's that's who he is. I mean, just loud, um, you know, no holds barred. Not going to refrain from saying anything he doesn't feel. Uh, and that, you know, just it really stood out from the second he walked out of the lobby of the hotel, from when he sat in the chair for the interview through the lobby, meeting all the guys. I mean, to the end of the show, that's that's who he was. And uh, yeah, you didn't. You weren't. There wasn't some surprise, quiet side of Goose that he, you know, when he's off camera. I mean, that's how he was, you know, from the moment we saw him until when he left. And I think there are a lot of ways that the season that the Ravens had in 2000 could have gone and, and could have been portrayed. But I think when talking about all the successes that, that that defense had and how dominant they were, I mean, on the offensive side of the ball, they struggled. They struggled a lot that year, and so to be able to kind of figure out how you wanted to split the time because obviously you want to focus. The defense was so good. You have to commit time to it, but what was the thought process in terms of how much you wanted to commit to the other aspects, such as the offensive unit and the coaching staff and, and that other stuff behind what the defense did? I think the, I think the offense gets a little bit of a short shrift because the defense was so dominant. Um, I'm not sure, you know, it's pretty hard to win uh, with with middle of the road at both positions, someone's got to be dominant in this league, and that was the defense. But 
um, you know, the offense had a really, really rough year, uh, but there was never any discord or hatred from the defense to say, man, these guys really are, are killing us. I'm not sure that when you talk about things that couldn't exist today, I'm not sure a, a, a disparity between offense and defense could exist today without there being some sort of public spat or controversy or, or wrong word said they weren't like that. And I think a lot of that is due to, as we tell the story, Trent Dilfer and his personality and his toughness and his ability to subjugate his ego and say, this is a defensive led team. I'm just not going to give the, I'm not going to give the games away. That's my, that's my job. You know, I don't have to be the hero that takes, that takes a lot. And, and I think if they decided we need the offense to to win. They they might have went and tried to score more points, but they were a ball control running team that allowed their defense to shut people out. That's just sort of the style you play. So I, I feel like their offense might have been better if their defense wasn't so good because it it forced them. It didn't force them. It was the smart thing to do. It for it, to become a defensive team that ran the ball. That's that's what you do when you have the makeup of what they did. I think the offense was probably a little bit better than they get credit, but they didn't have to show it. So why show it? Let's control the ball and, and kick field goals and win 13 to, to three. <laughs> Which for, for Brian Billick, that was probably one of the hardest things he had to uh, endure as a head coach, especially an offensive minded guy. But I think he had the the quarterback and Trent Dilfer said, no, 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 you don't have to. We don't have to light it up. We, we, we've got the tools to get by on offense. Let's let the defense handle things. A ton of interview left with Ken and Jason. Don't worry already. A ton of great insight by them. And I'm really excited to finish out the interview in our final segment. So be sure to stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. A lot to talk about still on Lockdown Ravens. But first, this episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. And for me, it's looking like another win for me in fantasy basketball. I'm going for 16 and 0. So hopefully I do get there. But if you want a different twist on fantasy, be sure to check out Prize Picks. And there are a ton of games and formats you can use. It's super easy to play, and you can have a ton of current entries. And how it works is you pick two to six players, and if they will go score more or less in their prize picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on an entry that's only competing against other people. It's a zero suggested available prize picks offers rejection of any sport you watch, the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, you have NHL, PGA, college football, college basketball, and so much more. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. Is that easy? They have same investor draws on the currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. Download the prize app or go to pricepicks.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First time users can receive a 100 minutes of buzz match up to $100 or promo code locked on. If you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Don't forget to enter promo code locked on at sign up for an instant deposit match of up to $100. And we're back here, our final segment of Locked On Ravens. Kevin Allstriker, your host, still here with you again. Thank you so much for tuning in with us and making us your first listen of the day on Locked On Ravens. Be sure, again, to check out Locked On NFL as your second listen. And be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and follow along on audio form here. Again, all free to do so. And thank you so much for all the support. But now let's dive back into our interview with Ken and Jason as we continue talking about the Bullies of Baltimore ESPN 30 for 30 film and celebrating those 2000 Ravens. There's so much talk nowadays about how much different the NFL is in looking at this team. I mean, we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit how – some things that this Ravens, especially the defense, did in 2000, you're talking ejections, fines, suspensions. Were, were there any points to you, and I'm sure there were throughout the film, that you're kind of thinking, 
man, you know, this could never happen in today's game. Yeah. I mean, I think you watch this film and there's some hit montages that you're like, Whoa, wow. I can't believe that. And it's very clear that, that they couldn't exist today. Um, you know, I think all you have to think of is the, the hit on, um, uh, in the AFC championship on Rich Gannon that, that knocked him out goose landing on him. You know, it's, it was par for the course back then to, to, I mean, you tackle somebody, you land on them. That's sort of part of it. Um, it's a different game now and a lot has changed, but I think when you, when you watch this, you see an aggression that couldn't exist today. It would be undisciplined. It would be penalized. I think the team defense would still be, if not the best, one of the best defenses in the league today in 2022, 2023, because they had so much skill. I mean, they, they, they were extremely skilled, but their attitude, their bullying attitude, I, I don't think that could exist today. And, and that was what set them apart from just being a, a really dominant defense to being an all-time defense is that they combined the skill with this attitude that just intimidated and scared the hell out of everybody. I mean, you didn't want to go out in the field. Um, and in fact, you see in the film, some people didn't go out in the field to face them. They said, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of another time uh, in a specific instance where a player just said, nah, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to go to the bench and I'm not going to deal with that team anymore. And you, and you saw that against that team that year. Yeah, it, it is pretty incredible. And kind of a follow-up, you know, there's a lot of discourse about who is the actual greatest defense of all time. You know, the 85 Bears are in that conversation. Is that defense, the 2000 Ravens, in your eyes, the best defense of all time? Always going to ask that one. Uh, I, I personally think it, it, it's it's tough to make that call uh, and make it very definitively. I think from what I've seen, yeah, they're, they're right up there at the top with 85 Bears and uh, – you know, uh, I don't think there's any uh, anything wrong with those two kind of sharing that mantle. Yeah, I, I mean, best and, and greatest defense of all time. Boy, you can argue that forever. It's one of the great, you know, barroom arguments that you can have. Um, as Brian Billick says in the film, he has a lot of stats on his side. So if you want to go stats, sure. I mean, the Ravens match up. Um, and, and can be argued with anyone, 76 Steelers, uh, so on and so on. But uh, I do think this is the most intimidating defense of all time. Um, I think they, they might be tied with a couple of teams as the best defense, whatever you want to define that is. But I don't think anyone scared teams and intimidated teams like this team did because they were so <laughs> out there as personalities I mean, when you line up against great players, you're like, okay, this is going to be tough. But when you line up against Tony Saragusa and Ray Lewis, you know, and look, the rest of the team wasn't quiet. You know, they were all trash talkers. There's a little bit of like extra fear that goes into that. So best, sure, put them, put them tied with a lot of people. Most intimidating, definitely. You know, I, th I think I like that assessment, you know, because because you can say there are best defenses. There are a lot of people in that conversation, but especially when you watch this film, I mean, you can tell 
how people just didn't want to go out there on Sunday and play the Ravens because of they knew what was coming whenever they were able to step out on that field against them. But in terms of these, you know, players and coaches who you guys were able to talk to storytelling, were there, were there any stories throughout the course of the production that you would never heard before? And you, you know, spo- as many spoilers as you want to give or not give in terms of what actually is in the film. But were, was there anything in there that you're like, oh, I'd never heard this before. And this is a really good story. Uh, well, I, I will say that uh, some of the things that we heard from uh, Kevin Byrne, who's the PR director for the team, who plays a, a critical role in in the storytelling, both on the stage and, and through his interview, uh, were a bit of surprise. And, and mainly in that um, PR is usually the department that is going to try to, uh, you know, keep things calm and not stir the pot in any way. And... Uh, Kevin was not that apparently. Kevin was had a great nickname that came from uh, Brian Bilk. He was called the Firestarter because he would be the one that kind of drove the engine. You know, some of the time, some of the things that you would see from Brian Billick um, in the locker room after the game, kind of egging the team on, and, 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 and his motivational speeches came from things that Kevin saw uh, and told told Brian about. So. Um, that was interesting to me that that PR uh, was not uh, again was kind of a driving force or contributing to that kind of brash attitude that that team had. No, I mean, the, I think the film, the film's filled with things that I didn't know. And I, I, I would bet even the, the most hardcore Ravens fans didn't know, um, you know, from the time that uh, Tony Saragusa needed to have an enema and how that affected his play in a game. I mean, if you don't tune in after hearing that, let me pitch that. I'm not sure, you know, what you're interested in. It's a great story all the way to, you know, there's a moment in the locker room after the, the AFC divisional playoff where coach Billick tells all of us NFL films to turn our cameras off. And we did, we turned all our cameras off, except we kept the audio running and he didn't know that until just a couple of months ago and recorded what he said about the Titans when he thought all the cameras were off. Well, all the cameras were off, but the audio wasn't. And so there's things like that we discovered in re in remaking, you know, uh, this film and going through the archives that we were like, wow, listen to this Billick moment that no one has ever heard except for the people in that locker room. Let's put that out there. Let's, let's show it to, to the people. And there's a lot of little moments like that, that people will be surprised by. Yeah, so not everybody listening to this has to tune in. You know, they cannot miss any of those fun stories that happen. And there, there are plenty throughout the entire film. But, you know, things like this, I think, can change a lot of the time where, you know, you have an idea going into it. Then the final cut, you know, maybe doesn't have something that you thought was going to be in there at first. And, you know, you take something out. Were there any of those moments? I know you guys talked about how Tony Saragusa's death impacted some of the overall tone of the film. But were there any other aspects that maybe you envisioned something would be in there in the final cut at the beginning of the process? or Maybe you put something in you didn't think was going to be in there at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I thought the coaches would play a bigger role. I thought Rex Ryan, uh, who people forget were, was on that staff, Rex Ryan was on that staff, would play a bigger role. Um, uh, you know, the, the coaching staff uh, was incredible. Marvin Lewis, Jack Del Rio, Mike Smith, a whole bunch of future NFL coaches were on that staff. Um, but we got lucky um, and and got to produce a second film um, that is just a, a, a cut down 
of the live event. So you can watch the film, which has all the backstory and everything. But then there's a second film being released on ESPN Plus called The Brazen Ravens, which has a, a lot of extra material that didn't make the show. So you, you're very... Um, you're very lucky if you want to hear all the stories because between the two films, you're going to get to hear everything. That's the beauty of uh, streaming platforms. You get multiple, you can get, do multiple right. things like that. And yeah, I mean, it was, the, the event was two and a half hours in person back last May when we shot it. So we knew that there were going to be things that could be, that weren't going to make the, uh, the main documentary. So it was good to have that, the ability to stretch those out with the, uh, the alternate, the Brazen Ravens. Yeah, so be sure to check out that as well. The yeah, and by the way, Ken is really underselling. Like, like he very quietly mentions the whole goose story. Like, I don't think either of us could do justice to the way that Tony tells that story on stage. Uh, it is, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. He does not hold back any of the details of what happened uh, when he had an issue. Uh, he's backed up a little bit. You can say <laughs> going into a game. If you watch for nothing else, that is what you have to watch for, that that one story, because it really is. It is that good. But I do want to end on, I guess, a cheesy question. In terms of everything that you guys had put into this over, you know, however long it took to produce the entire thing, what, what was your favorite part of being able to be a part of this and be a part of telling the story? I, I think just the the ability to bring those guys together for that night. Um, and to have it in front of a crowd that it was so appreciative and, and so loving of that team to get everybody back together, to get the crowd there. Uh, like it was one of the coolest things I've gotten to do as a producer director, uh, in my career. Um, and just to kind of be in the back and I was sitting the very top of the theater, um, you know, with our crew up there kind of you know, directing and, and putting the whole event, the live event together and just watching it unfold. I'm like, this is, this is really cool. Uh, if, even if I were, if I were just a fan there watching, I would love it. But as, as a producer director, it was just a really cool moment to be able to do that and, and, and make that event happen. I'll leave you with one moment that will, will be the moment that, that I, that sticks with me is we knew that uh, the way Ray Lewis approached this season, the 2000 season, was through the lens of the film Gladiator. And, you know, he watched it before every game and it was, it, it informed his attitude uh, toward the whole year of uh, win the crowd, win your freedom. And him and his intros came from that film. So we knew Gladiator and, the, you know, coming into the arena was a big thing. And a day before the event, we're rehearsing on the stage at the Meyerhoff. And I look down and I say, what's this square here uh, on the stage? And, and the stagehands say, oh, well, that's a platform that raises up onto the stage, you know, like Gladiator. And I said, oh, <laughs> and you'll see how that works out in the film. And it was one of those moments where you thought, oh, this is meant to be this is going to work out pretty good. <laughs> um, and it took and, a while to get that to work out right though. That that's for sure. It did. And, and it's one of those things that's uh, to me, one of the climaxes of the film where you're just, you're giddy with enjoyment watching it. And, uh, and it was all happenstance. We didn't know it ahead of time the day before we just sort of looked at our feet and said, you know, there's a, there's a trap door here in the stage.
it was great. You said it took a while. Were there technical difficulties with, with how it went up and down? What, what was the, what's the story behind that? The show was edited very well. Uh, <laughs> to uh, let you know uh, what could have been a much longer rise uh, on the platform. And we'll just leave it at that. It was just, uh, you know. Uh, it was a it, timing it issue. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily meant to be a uh, a prop and a stage show. It was it meant as a way to get things uh, from large objects from the uh, under the stage to above the stage. But we made it work. <laughs> that's that's what counts. As long as he got there, that that is what counts at the end of the day. But again, a, a phenomenal film. And Ken, Jason, I really appreciate you guys coming on here and, and sharing a bit of your insights on how everything worked, what what went into this. Do you have any final things you want to share about the film and anything else you want to say? I think Ravens fans are going to uh, love it. And people, if if they don't love the Ravens, they will after watching this. Uh, certainly that team and, and the attitude that uh, is reflected in the city and the franchise. I don't know that um, there's many films that have come out of NFL films that are as enjoyable, just entertaining. You know, it might not have the the big controversies or, or arguments, but boy, it is fun to watch. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It just I think it's you're going to watch it and have a fun experience, and you're going to realize what uh, what that team was all about, and uh, enjoy the ride for uh, you know the 90 minutes that it's on ESPN. Yeah, so be sure to again check it out. The Bullies of Baltimore 30 for 30 series ESPN February 5th is 8.30 p.m. Eastern is when it premieres. Highly recommend a great film. Ken, Jason, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. A huge, huge, huge shout out to Ken and Jason for taking the time to talk with me about the 2000 Ravens, the process that went in to this film. I mean, seriously, I, I cannot recommend it enough. I'm really excited to see all the reactions to it on Sunday. Again, check it out. On Sunday, February 5th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time is when it premieres on ESPN. So th there's plenty to look forward to, plenty to be excited about. And again, I, I'm really looking forward to everything that comes out of this, and especially the recognition that this team is getting because of it. But that's all I have for you here today on Locked on Ravens. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I'm going to get back here tomorrow. We'll be rounding out the week with more Ravens content. So be sure to stay tuned for that, and I will see you right back here tomorrow.